You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. This is the good news of the gospel. God made us, showed us how to live, but we chose our own way. Our sins separated us from God. But God had a compassionate plan. The Father sent His Son, Jesus, to restore all that was broken. We couldn't comprehend Jesus. Or His supposed kingdom. His message was radical and offensive. So So we we killed killed Him. But a greater story was being told. The Father placed the wrongdoings of the entire world, past, present, and future, on Jesus, making a way back to Himself. Now, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are raised to new life, free from all guilt and condemnation, as God is making all things new. His Spirit now lives in those who believe to take His good news to all people, even to the ends of the earth. This This is the the Gospel. Good morning, church. My name is Casey Burnley, and my husband and I are deacons in the prayer ministry where we lead the prayer response team, and we're coaches of the prayer team in the recovery ministry. So our passage this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Casey. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. That will be our primary passage this morning. Uh, And so I want you to be able to look at certain things I want to draw out of it as we uh, dive into uh, the proclamation of his word this morning. It it was three days before my 18th birthday uh, when what theologians call the work of illumination happened to me. Uh, my friend had been sharing the gospel with me. I, I thought uh, like Christianity belonged to guys like Ned Flanders uh, and certainly didn't belong to a guy like me. And so if uh, my background had a bit of violence in it, a bit of perversion in it, uh, and I had spent a year uh, with, with my friend sharing the gospel with me, taking me uh, to church with him uh, on the weekends and on Wednesday nights to a thing called JAM, which stood for Jesus and Me. Um, and I uh, would go to that, and, and then I would try hard uh, to stop doing the, the things that my heart was drawn to. And I don't know uh, if you've uh, tried that before, but like I said, I was prone to violence and prone 
perversion. There's probably some family dynamics there that, that created that mess, but that, that was my bent, and I had a hard time not finding those things, and those things oftentimes would find me. Uh, and so I don't know if you feel like that, if uh, you're not a Christian, like sometimes that stuff just finds you. That, that's how my life was going. I didn't have to look for violence. It would sometimes find me. I didn't have to look for perversion. Sometimes those girls would find me. And so I was, uh, I was stuck and, and I had spent a full year going to church with Jeff uh, and trying uh, trying to stop my compulsions um, from working their way out in my life. That, that was my story. And three days before my 18th birthday, the light came on and I could finally uh, believe. I, I wanted to believe and I couldn't quite get there. And I couldn't get there because I, I didn't think I was the kind of person that could be a, a Christian. And then I couldn't get there because it was hard to believe that the gospel was as simple as believing in the finished work of Christ on my behalf. Like I kept kind of uh, convoluting and kind of meshing up the moral law of God, which is good, beautiful, and right, and the gospel of Jesus Christ that would say, I don't have to do anything but believe by faith alone in his grace alone to be saved from what's most wrong in me. And I had spent all this time trying to manage my behavior in order that I might become a Christian when all the while the offer of salvation is on the table because I was trying to handle what I'll just describe as fruit or maybe since we're in Texas and summer might actually be over. Uh, I was trying to treat my sin like crabgrass. I was just mowing over it, trying to stop making it visible. And there was actually a deeper, more serious issue in me, the issue of sin. Uh, and I couldn't, uh, I kept trying to mow over the crabgrass and then the next weekend it'd pop right back up and I'd have to mow it down again and it'd pop right back up and then I had to mow it down again and pop back up and I'd mow it down and it'd pop back up. And that was the rhythm that I found my life in and I wanted out of it and I couldn't get out of it. And in three days before my 18th birthday, the Holy Spirit did the work of illumination and I could see it and I believed it. And 32 years later, I have not recovered from that moment. And I gave you last week my 12 second testimony, which was there was a season of my life that I was a violent man and I was a perverted man. And someone preached the good news of the gospel to me that the death of Jesus Christ on that cross took from me, if I would believe in it, all of God's wrath towards my sin, past, present, and future, and he did so fully, freely, and forever. That was the game. That's the gospel, period. And I, I didn't even know how to think about Christianity outside of kind of uh, moral rules and laws. But once I became a Christian, all of a sudden I could see certain things. Like I could see in the Bible that God gets his people out of slavery before he gives them the law. I could see that Abraham was counted as righteousness 420 years before the moral law of God was even given. That there's this movement of grace towards people who are far from God in which God is trying to save them from what's most wrong with them. Not the stuff that they might identify is most wrong with them, but what is actually most wrong with them. A heart twisted and diseased by sin, a thing that we cannot fix ourselves. We can mow over it, we can try to poison it, we can try to uh, cover it up, but we can't get it out from inside of us only 
the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And I heard it, and, and I'd heard it a thousand times, but, but on that day, three days before my 18th birthday, 32 years ago, I could hear it. I could hear it and just received it with such gladness. And, and, and really the only way for me to understand the gospel really from that season for the next few years is, is through the, the lenses of personal conversion. I mean, I just, man, I, I came back and, and I bought a t-shirt that said, I heart Jesus. And I was telling everybody about Jesus. I didn't even know much about Jesus, man. I was just telling them about what I read or what I saw or what I thought or warning them about hell. I mean, I knew next to nothing. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks, but man, I was in love because I had received grace. I had received mercy and all of a sudden I had this new heart. It was like, here, and here's what, I, I think this stuff happens in the, the heavenlies, the kind of spiritual realm that we can't see. You know what, all of a sudden, like violence stopped finding me. And perversion stopped finding me. And I had to put up a fight sometimes, like in the spiritual places. But like all of a sudden where, but before that moment, I would just fall into these things. And then I wouldn't even know I was falling into them until I, after I'd finished. And then I would feel so guilty. I'd feel so much shame. And now all of a sudden they weren't finding me anymore. And, and I wasn't finding them. And occasionally I would find them. And I know beforehand, wait a minute, this isn't good or right. And I could turn my back on it. But none of that, like, like I got a new heart from Jesus. And that new heart enabled me to see and interact with the world. But the only way I really understood the gospel was through the lens of personal conversion. And so I set out to just tell everyone out there uh, about Jesus and his love, including my little I heart Jesus shirt, because uh, like I went away one way and I came back another and it was very confusing uh, to that group of guys and gals I'd been running with and, and getting in some, um, I mean, let's just call it some trouble. I'm getting in some trouble with, um, and, and, and yet, as I began to grow in my knowledge of Jesus, the gospel, the scriptures, I, I began to see um, uh, certain things in the Bible and certain things that are a part of the gospel and yet are bigger than personal salvation. It's that yes and amen, Christ has come to seek and save the lost. Yes and amen, primarily the gospel leads to personal conversion. But what I began to see all throughout the scriptures is that the reign and rule of Christ and the redemption that he has purchased goes well beyond just human beings who are saved out of sin and love him. He has, he is giving, and I love this part of Jesus. It, it appeals to the aggressive part of me, right? He is giving nothing to the enemy. He is redeeming everything under his reign and rule. He is not giving a sliver of creation to the enemy of our souls. He is not giving one broken part of the ecosystem of the universe to the enemies of God. So that the gospel is not less than personal salvation, but it is more. In fact, the gospel carries with it the cosmic renewal of all things. And, and here's my invitation to you this morning, specifically if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, let me just say this. That gospel, the one I just shared with you, maybe even as I'm sharing my story, you resonate some of that. that that's right here for you this morning. That you have not out the grace of God. I would just, without even knowing, I would just lovingly say, you probably, probably should get over yourself. Like the Bible's filled with far worse people than you. 
And if you're like, you don't even know my story, I don't have to. I know David's. <laughs> right? And I know that brother slept with another man's wife and then had that man killed. And is called a man after God's own heart. And that, you'll have to work through that later. I mean, that's a hot mess in and of itself. You, you have to kind of rightly understand the, the grace of God, even to have categories for this, right? And so I'm guessing that you haven't committed adultery and then murdered someone. And, and if you have, I, I would, if you tell us, you confess that, we will have to turn you in. We can't just be like, oh, all right, you know, don't worry about that. You know, the grace of God is available to you, and there's a price to be paid for that level of wickedness. Now, um, what, what I began to see in the scriptures is that the cultural mandate given to Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve in the garden to fill the earth and subdue it, or, or the language I, I would use, um, after Genesis 3, when sin enters the cosmos, is to push back darkness and establish light. So if you read your Bible, what you'll find is that Eden, that garden that God put the man and woman in, it's ordered, it's beautiful, it's innocent, but the rest of the world is wild still. So if you remember the command given to Adam and Eve, it was to fill the earth and subdue it. All right, so uh, make the rest of the world ordered like this. Well, sin enters the story and it fractures the cosmos. But, but this never goes away. This mandate never goes away to establish order, to bring about human flourishing, to set up a light where there is darkness, to bring about order where there is chaos, to order life for human flourishing. Now, I am not saying that Christians nor Christianity can bring about utopia in the here and now. I don't believe that. I think we could work ourselves to exhaustion and just see the first fruits of human flourishing. But, but here's, here's what I take from both history and I take from the scriptures. I should have said that back. Here's what I take from the scriptures and I see in history because history testifies to the truth of the scriptures. The scriptures don't testify to the truth of history. You tracking with me? Right, one has authority, right? Uh, another one can be seen from a billion different perspectives. Where the people of God, in particular, obey and live into the moral law of God, humanity flourishes. Where they refuse to, humanity begins to circle the drain and become less and less human. And, and I don't, you might want to argue with me that Western civilization's um, circling the drain, but I don't think you could argue that it's not in the commode. I don't think you could argue that it's not in the commode. And, and the argument I want to make from Scripture is when the people of God live boldly the way of Jesus in the world, that in this space in between the already but not yet, that the victory of Christ has been won and we're waiting for the consummation of all things, that you and I, if we will, as the people of God, I'm not talking about people who aren't the people of God. I'm talking about those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have tasted the first fruits of his righteousness, those of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If we will live faithfully where God has planted us, then good things tend to follow even for those who don't know him or love him. And, and I would encourage you, this is where we have so done a good job of exercising God out of our cultural imagination. Do you know that hospital, and this is, this is from a secular historian, not a Christian historian, Tom Holland's book, Dominion. I would grab it and read it. Do you know where hospitals came from? The people of God in the third century, fourth century. Do you know where orphanages came from? The, the people of God. 
I mean, I, I could just keep, you know where public education comes from? The, the people, all these were all things that just belonged to the elite, and it was Christians that could see experiencing the good news of Jesus Christ, experiencing the gospel, being moved by his grace, they would see the brokenness of the world and move towards it and fulfill then the cultural mandate to push back darkness, to establish light, to light candles in the darkness, and, and, the, and the world's a better place for it. We've just done a great job of exercising that out of it. It's funny, anytime I see progressives arguing for women's rights or, or for the rights of all people, I just always ask the question, where'd you get that language? Where'd that come from? You didn't get it from the Greeks. You didn't get it from the Romans. You got it from the people of God. So those who would tear down the church of Jesus Christ with language given to them by the church of Jesus Christ. But for me, I just don't have a ton of respect for that nonsense, right? You're using a framework that didn't exist before the word of God and the people of God brought it to bear on humanity and you're trying to weaponize it against its author. And, and then what, what world are you creating for us? It's not utopia, it's mass confusion. Women aren't safer. Children aren't safer. You'd have a hard time arguing. Again, and, and I'm, I, I'm praying for renewal among the people of God because that's where it always begins. I love this. Well, let me read this passage. I love this passage because this is about the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That, that his, uh, it's all mindness is real. Here's what it says, first, or Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of, of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and they were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, listen to this, to reconcile to himself all things. What does he mean by all things? Whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross, so that the death and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension and his reign and rule over all things have purchased, redeemed for God, all things. Everything on earth, everything seen and unseen, so that the gospel is, yes, personal salvation, but it's also bigger than that. It's the empowerment of his people in the fulfillment of the cultural mandate in the already but not yet space while we wait for his return in the consummation of all things. This is James Davidson Hunter. He is a sociologist that teaches at the University of Virginia. He's got a great book called To Change the World, and here's a, a quote. Indeed, redemption through Christ represents a reaffirmation of the creation mandate, not it's annulment. To become a Christian is not to not fulfill the uh, creation mandate. It's not to kind of create 
holy huddles while we're worried about sin getting on us and defiling us and creating space from sinners so, so that we don't get influenced by them or uh, creating, th- th- this is saying, no, 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 you, be, becoming, being redeemed by Christ doesn't take you out of the world, it puts you in the world as a new creation. When people are saved by God through faith in Christ, they, not only, uh, they are not only being saved from their sins, they are saved in order to resume the tasks mandated at creation, the task of caring for and cultivating a world that honors God and reflects his character and glory. And so all I want to do in our limited time today is talk about how you and I, having received the gospel of Jesus Christ freely, are to live in this world in such a way that human flourishing becomes possible as we live boldly into God's call on our life. And I don't think I'm adding anything onto your calendar by doing this, all right? So I think there are three spaces. If you remember last week, this idea of relational circles, I think there are three um, places that I would just encourage you to live in, in what James Hunter Davidson calls faithful Presence. What does it look like to just be faithfully present where God put us? Well, there's three spaces that, that God has placed you, and I want to talk about those. The, the first is work. God has placed you at work. And so one of the ways that, that you and I, uh, right, give ourselves over to this cultural mandate is by working hard for the glory of God. And, and so I would encourage you this way, Christian, it, you should not be lazy or late or untrustworthy at your job. You should be a model worker at the company that you are working at. And, and I know, I know your boss is a schmuck and all of your coworkers are incompetent. I know, I know. But the book says you don't work for them. Book says you don't work for them. You don't work for that boss and you don't work for that group that you work with. You actually work unto the Lord. In fact, this is what Colossians 3, 23 and 24 would command of us. Whatever you do, work heartily, hard. Work to the point of being tired. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, for you are serving the Lord Christ. Listen, there's no human flourishing where there's lazy men and women. There is no human flourishing where we think somebody else will run with this. Like, you ought to be the most capable, competent, hardest working man or woman at your job. You should be the go-to for your boss when this really matters. Like when I've got a thing that's got to happen, I'm gonna give it to my best person. You should be the one popping in to their head because you're there early and you stay late and you work hard and you do it all with integrity, which means you don't kill your family or your soul on the altar of work. No, you work unto the Lord. You work unto the Lord. You're not lazy. You're not constantly bad-mouthing everybody. In fact, you, you can make it awkward because you won't enter into that at all. Like This is what it means to be salt and light in the world that we're living in. Salt is a preservative. It keeps things from decaying. One of the ways you do that is by working hard unto the Lord, seeing work as a place that God has placed you both as an example and as a herald of the good news of the gospel. 
Uh, I will say that each of these three spaces, more than just you being a nice guy or a hard worker or whatever, we are those who herald, speak the good news of the gospel to those who are far from God. Uh, Robert Woodbury did a study um, uh, of places around the world where Protestants had gone in and NGOs had gone in uh, to help people in really desperate situations. So those parts of the world where there wasn't enough food or the level of violence was uh, like out of control or he, he, he just wanted to see how do you actually make a difference in a community and, and what he found, it was a decade long study and, and you can actually look this up if you want, his name's Robert Woodbury and, and what he found is that where Protestants had gone in and shared the gospel while simultaneously building schools and building clinics and hospitals and working with government agencies and, and agencies like IJM that would increase uh, the, the level of serious law keeping and cut down on corruption, that, that there was far more flourishing than if you just came in and met a felt need. And this goes back to the reality of the gospel that would say your deepest need isn't food, shelter, and safety. There's an issue of the heart. It's not that those three things are unimportant. God cares deeply about those things. But without a transformed heart, then you're constantly having to pump dollars and energy into a system that can't be fixed. You have to have a transformation of heart in order to fix. And so this is a quote from that research. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with a comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations where the gospel goes forward and captivates the hearts of people. Cultures and societies become more economically stable. They, they become more moral. The family unit is strengthened and humanity begins to flourish especially as it relates to women and children. And where this has not taken place, life gets really, really hard for women and children in particular. Where we work is a place not only where we lead with the gospel message. Remember, just your 12-second testimony. Mine's violent and perverse. Maybe yours is, uh, I'm a, I was a rule follower and, and tried to control my environment by obeying all the rules. Maybe that was your, I, I don't need God because I've got my, my own kind of moral authority. Maybe that's your story. You were saved from that. Mine's, mine was a little grimier. And, and, and then you, you've gotten that and we lead with that. But we also say that as a hard worker and someone who can be counted on and someone who's respected in the workplace. The second place is our homes, and, and, and I, I'd love for you to see your house, your home, uh, as a kind of missional outpost where you can extend the hospitality of God that you've experienced. Again, here's, I know I'm a lot of quotes today. This is Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements from their book on hospitality. Let us use our homes to be micro-representations of that final banquet table, places where believers gather around food and drink God has graciously provided, celebrating that God has brought us to himself and opened that sacred space to all who are far from him. I love this sentence. Let's become relentlessly warm and welcoming because we've been relentlessly welcomed in Christ. The number of men and women I know that have become Christians over my 20 years here have almost all become Christians because of someone's dining room table. Because of someone's dining room table. That cutting through the pace of life in this area, the full calendars, the kids' sports every night of the week and sometimes 
triple or quadruple on Saturday, God have mercy on our souls. That through all the noise of busyness and wildness, they were invited in. They sat at a table. A man or woman was curious about their lives, about where they came from, where they were, how they were, and then had the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel that one has come not to condemn the world, but to save the world from condemnation. It is almost always, I would say 95% of the time, people who have become Christians in this church have done so through someone's dining room table. Hospitality is a profoundly powerful force. I don't know if you ever thought about it, if you're, if you're a church person, but, but have you ever thought about the fact that for a man to be an elder at a local church, hospitality is required of him? So that hospitality isn't, I'm a Gen Xer, so I think of Martha Stewart, uh, right? Gen, Gen, you know, hospitality isn't, maybe Joanna Gaines is the new one, right? Um, I don't even know if she's still around, but um, hospitality isn't getting the pumpkins out for fall. It's not a way of decorating the table. Hospitality is a welcoming in of the other. Space for someone who is far from him. Why? Because when we were far from him, he made space for us. While somebody included us in their relational circle. It's how we became Christians, and so now we own our own relational circle to welcome in. And I, the, one of the ways I've tried to do this in, in our lives, Lauren and I's lives, which um, can feel insane, is that if it can't be our home, it can be other places. And so uh, Nora's playing volleyball this year, and I didn't know about that. That's a whole thing. Uh, I don't know if you got to experience that, but that's every day, always, somewhere, and, and we're a small Christian school, so we might have to, you know, I don't know, drive to North Carolina for our game. And, uh, but we'll drive. You know, we don't have a bus. So we'll just get, put them in our car. We'll, we'll drive out there. And, um, and I'm with this group of people, though. I'm with this group of people every Tuesday night, every Thursday night. And then, my, you know, Sweet Nora has uh, students on Wednesday night. And then uh, Monday night I might have elder meeting. And, you know, it's just like, when, when would I possibly even have somebody into my home? And so I was trying to, okay, what does it look like to take hospitality with me? What does it look like to show up on Tuesday night for that game knowing that all of us are about to eat dinner at 9.30 and there ain't a lot open around here at 9.30. So how, so how might I be hospitable to these moms and dads that are in the same season of life that we are? How do I show hospital? Like how can I take hospitality outside of my home? So I wanna see my home as a missional outpost in my neighborhood. And, and then I want to take that hospitality with me wherever I go. So how do we push back darkness and establish light? We lead with the gospel at work and we, we share the hospitality that God has shown us to those around us, either via our dining room table or as best we can, taking our dining room table to them. And then the last way, and, and this is, uh, I think this is a, a way I would encourage us to stri- start to think and dream for this area. So we want to sh- show hospitality in our homes. We want to be hard workers. We want to lead with the gospel in both spaces. And then lastly, um, one of the refrains that you see, especially when the people of God are in exile, which is where I would argue we are, but that whole sermon series is coming this fall, um, is like, what do you do when no one's actually for you? That, that'll be this coming fall, and I think you know why. Um, and, and, and when the people are in exile, Um, here's what the Lord said to them through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. 
for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So we're working hard at work. We're sharing the gospel with coworkers as opportunities arise. We are faithfully looking at our house as a missional outpost. We're using our dining room table to show the generosity that we have experienced from God to others. And now we're seeking the welfare of our city. Basically what this means is that we look across the landscape of where God has planted us and we look for opportunities to show the order, the love, and the beauty of God to the world around us. And this is, yes, sharing the gospel, but can also be simple little steps of not here, not not on our watch, in our community. Uh, And so, like, I'll tell you something I've noticed in the last six months. It just kind of occurred to me and led to a conversation. I'm like, we got to do something about this. And maybe right now it's just I've got to do something about this, and maybe it'll turn into something else. Have you noticed uh, all the, um, like, apartments and homes being built for elderly men and women in our area? Like, it seemed to be popping up everywhere where I was having a conversation with a woman who's a member, and she's one of the nurses at that place. And, And she's actually one of the hospice nurses at that place, and she said a vast majority uh, of the, the men and women that are in the home that she primarily works in, no one has come by to see them in like six months. And I just thought, not on, not on my watch, not in my town, not while the glory of God can be made visible here, not, not where the love and mercy of God can be experienced because of us in this place. And so even now, conversations with Lauren, like, how can we, where do we have maybe just a Saturday morning just to go up? Where, where can we maybe get one of our worship leaders and, and take them up there just to sing? Because if everything else is gone in your mind, you'll remember songs. It's the last thing to go. Like, that's just looking around and going, what an opportunity we have to to push back darkness, to establish light, to honor those whom honor is due. Like, what would it look like if we looked around at Argyle and Bartonville and Louisville and Flower Mound and Highland Village and said, by the grace of God, wherever we see brokenness, we're going to step in. Wherever we see something dirty or distorted or twisted, we're going to step in and say, not while we're here, not while the people of God is here, we're going to embrace being the salt and light that God has called us to be in. So I would love for you to like look up. I'm telling you, the most miserable people I know are the people that only look at themselves. The most miserable people I know are navel gazers that are so overwhelmed by their own life that they feel crushed by it. And oddly enough, the happiest I know are those who have a tendency to look around and find an opportunity to serve another person. It's funny that, I don't know if you know this, that psychology is actually catching up to that. It's funny how, uh, you know, those social sciences keep catching up to the Bible. It's like, oh, you're, you're depressed and anxious? What you should do is you, you should serve someone. F- find a place to serve where you love, where, where you feel built, where you, it's, it's an odd thing. What would it be like to seek the welfare of the city? In fact, I would even make this argument the entire month of October, that kind of prayer initiative we do, All that is seeking the welfare of the city. What are we doing in our prayer walking through neighborhoods and pronouncing blessings over homes except seeking the welfare of our city? What's 24-7 prayer asking God to do what we cannot do in this area except seeking the welfare of the city? So when we say to you, hey, once or twice a week, go for a walk in your neighborhood and just pronounce blessings over houses. Oh, you don't know how to pray? Here, let's help you. Here's a little thing, a little card you can carry with you. You can just pray. And, and all you're doing is like, bless whoever lives in that house, God. 
Just play, bless that marriage. I pray you bless those kids. I pray you bless them financially. I pray you move in their hearts with power. I pray they would know that you know them and you love them and you see them. And I, like that's seeking the welfare of the city. Even like us going, hey, find some slots to pray is us saying we want God to do a work in this part. This is where God put us. This is where he planted us. We are, this is great. We are God's big plan for this area in this moment. It looks like a terrible plan to me. And yet, we're it. Look at me. Who else is coming? Who else is going to do it? Who else is going to contend in prayer? Who else is going to proclaim the gospel in our day? Who else is going to live righteously so there would be a picture of the mercy of God made visible to those whose plausibility structure can't even comprehend it anymore? Who's coming for us? No one. It's us. So when we say we want to pray because the world's getting dark, We want to walk the streets of this town, these cities, this area, and we want to just ask the Holy Spirit to do something that we cannot do, weak as we are in the flesh. We're we're contending for this city. We're contending for this area. And so this isn't like, throw. oh, we're Christians, so we better pray in the month of October. No, no, this is, hey, there's there's a pretty significant war going on in the background here. A spiritual fight that many of us are completely unaware of and And although ultimate victory is ours in the space between the already and not yet, we are called to be salt and light and push back darkness and establish light. And and I hope that in all of that, you would hear through through the lens of your proximity and your life. And and what I mean by that is I, I don't think Jesus is asking you to add a whole bunch of stuff to your calendar, but be faithful with the stuff that's on your calendar. Are you tracking with me on that? So more than I better get to doing this and I better get to doing that and I better get to do that. It's more like, how can I be faithful with where I am? Like, you've already got a job, I think. So I'm not like, you know, stop being lazy at home. You've got a job. So just go to work with a renewed zeal to serve the Lord and not, man, you already live in a neighborhood. So just be out front more than you're out back. That's not like, oh, we got to find time in the calendar for that. No, it's not just put two Adirondack chairs out front. I didn't know what those were either until I was married, but they're just kind of cool, comfy chairs. Just put them out front instead of hanging out, out back. As you look around our city and go, gosh, I hate that. Great, why don't we see how we might fix it? Let let me, I don't have time. I don't, nope. I was just gonna say if, just so that we can have a good, strong, friendly relationship with one another. If you see something in our community and you go, oh man, something needs to be done about that, more than likely, that is not the Lord asking you to come talk to me about stuff that we as a church should do. It is more often than not the Holy Spirit showing you to invite you into what he has gifted and wired you to be a part of to push back what's darkness and establish the light. And if you're like, well, it's just too big. It's way too big. And I'm like, hey, great. Start with one little step and see where it goes. Like, you, look at me. You are not a spectator in this. There are no spectators in the kingdom. And you've been gifted and wired beyond probably your imagination. And so you see a, a felt need. I, I, would, I would move towards it. I would move towards it and then see what the Lord might turn it into. Let me read. That's all I had. Just don't come to me and be like, you know what we should be doing? 
The Lord showed me this when I was prayer walking this week. We should have a ministry towards, I'm like, man, praise God. What do you need from me to pull that off? Sounds like God's given you a ministry. Here's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In the space between, the already but not yet, faithful presence is given to the people of God. Salt slows down decay. Light exposes obstacles, pain points, and traps and draws into the life of Christ made available to all via the gospel. So here, here's how I want to close. I just want to pray for us. Uh, and, and then we're going to stand together and we're just going to sing in response to this a declaration of the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, his redemption over all things unto himself. Yes, those of us who would become Christian as sons and daughters, but more than that, he will concede nothing to the enemy, that all things will be made new. And while we await the consummation of all things, we faithfully are used by God to push back darkness and establish light. So while I pray, there are gonna be some men and women that come up front, that's our prayer team. And if at some point last week or this past week, you've said yes to Jesus, like that gospel we were talking about early on, you said, yeah, I'm, I'm saying yes to that. We, we would love to hear from you, to come alongside of you, support you as you begin to walk this new life that Christ has been. We'll even baptize you and celebrate you today. We've been doing that uh, since last night. And so if that's you and you're like, man, I want to say yes to Jesus and I want to be baptized. We've got shorts and t-shirts and towels. We're ready for you. Uh, and we would love to celebrate the new life that God has brought to you, but for those of you who are Christians, the, the great commission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, well, he, he, he also says to teach them to observe all that I have commanded, right? So what does it look like to observe the salt and light that God has called us to, the reign of Christ? The first thing is I would ask you to consider what your reputation is at work. The, the hard part about this is if you have a bad one, you're probably unaware. But I would just be curious of whether or not you work as, you, as unto the Lord. Or you cut corners, you tend to be lazy, you give in to bad-mouthing the other people in your What would it be like for you to not do that, repent of that? And then I wonder, is your home your castle? Or is it a missional outpost, a, 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 a table to invite people around into, and I know we're busy, gosh, I know we're busy. So what would it look like then for you to carry that hospitality to those spaces of busyness that you're all in? And then where do you see in our community brokenness that you might be able to step in? It's everywhere. Gosh, what was it, a week and a half ago, a 17-year-old was shot across the street from Louisville High School by another kid? That, that's a pretty good symptom of a sick society, I believe. What does it look like for us to step into this mess with the light of Jesus Christ? I mean, it, it could be as simple as picking up trash. You're just making someplace better than it was. 
bringing order, pushing back darkness. So, so what does that look like for you? It's too varied for me to answer for all, but, but those are the three categories that as we finish here today and you head back out into this world with these circles that, that you should carry with you. And so I'm gonna pray. Uh, we're gonna have our prayer team come up. We're all gonna stand together. We're gonna sing this song about the reigning rule of Jesus Christ. If you wanna say yes to Jesus this morning, you come, let us know. And if you want, we'll baptize you and celebrate that new life today. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us. Thank you that we've enjoyed your goodness in ways that we, man, we don't really tie to you anymore. I thank you for the safety of this area. I thank you for first responders and um, a, a local government that, that keeps us safe. Like all of these are just bits and pieces of the common grace goodness that's been born uh, of your people pushing back darkness and establishing light. I thank you that I'm looking around the room at a bunch of different backgrounds, a bunch of different ethnicities, and a bunch of different socioeconomic, and that 200 years ago, that's not happening. And so I thank you for your good work to heal and reconcile and bring about change and establish goodness. And I, I thank you that it's our turn. I pray that you might grant us the courage to step into it with a great deal of boldness. Pray for that man or woman who said yes to you earlier this week or last week. Just pray courage for them. Maybe even someone this morning who's hearing and understanding, like I did three days before my 18th birthday, maybe it just finally clicked and I could see it. Just pray grace over them, the courage to come. Let us know and let us celebrate new life with them. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. Help us. We need you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Would you